The buildings on Main Street of Disney World are unique. The first floor of each of these buildings is like the store or the souvenir shop, and you can, they're normal size and normal shape. However, the second floor of all of these buildings are five-eighths scale of the first floor, which means they tighten in a little bit. And if you have a third floor, like over here to the right, it's actually only one-half scale of the first floor. You couldn't even walk around in it. It's tiny. And the windows are actually much smaller than they look. It's all to make it feel like when you look up the building that it's taller and full-sized, even though it's not tall and it's not full-sized. Disney has duped you again. Main Street, this is what you see when you walk in. You see this long street that heads towards the princess's castle. But even here, the Imagineers are playing with you. Because what they have done with the facades of these buildings, they have angled the facades in such a way to make it look like a longer walk down to the princess's castle. They've manipulated it so that you feel like it's this long main street leading to the castle because of the way they've angled some of the lines on the facade to make it look like it's a longer walk. And, and I'm not making this up, the main street on the way to the castle was engineered to be slightly uphill. So that it would take you a little longer to get there, you'd feel a little tireder, and it would increase the illusion that it was a longer walk than it actually was. Go Walt. All of this has a name in art and in this kind of art and engineering. It's called forced perspective. A perspective is being forced upon you. I think it's safe to say that reality is not always as clear as we might think. It's not always as clear as we'd like it to be because reality can be hidden it can be escaped from, it can be manipulated, it can be warped. And this can be done individually and it can be done corporately. We see clearly from Disney's example and virtual reality goggles that individual reality can definitely be played with, that your perspective can be forced to see things in a certain way. But also a church or a campus like ours can buy into a complete unreality about itself. We can live in a forced perspective about who we are. We can indeed not know ourselves. Today we're going to look at a church in the book of Revelation that bought into an unreality. So much so that living this unreality had sort of become its mission. If you remember, the orienting question of our Mission Impossible series has been... Can the church bridge the culture without losing its soul? And the answer we've been giving is yes, as long as bridging the culture isn't our number one mission. That our number one mission must be to declare Jesus as Savior and declare Jesus as Lord. If we make that a secondary mission and make bridging the culture the primary mission, then we'll give up the gospel in order to appease the culture. And so, yeah, we can bridge the culture as long as we're bridging the culture in submission to this other mission, to the main mission of honoring Christ as Savior and honoring Christ as Lord. 
And so we've been looking at churches who have taken on a kind of shadow mission in an attempt to appease or appeal to its culture. And so we've looked at Ephesus, and we've looked at Pergamum, we've looked at Thyatira, and today we're going to look at Sardis. You can see from our map that Sardis is the next stop in the route that the messenger would have taken. It's about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. And Sardis was acclaimed in the ancient world long before the other cities that we have looked at. From antiquity, Sardis was one of the best-known cities and the most renowned cities for its wealth and for its power. It was at the crossroads of five uh, major trade routes, which meant wealth was pouring in literally from all directions. It was a hugely wealthy city. And the original fortress city was actually set up 1,500 feet above sea level. This is just the ruins of it, but you can imagine when that was all built out, the size and the height of that fortress around which Sardis was protected. And so it was a formidable um, city to conquer. It was a formidable city to live in. And it was the, the capital... Sardis was the capital of Lydia, and Lydia is the, the Old Testament or the ancient term for that entire Asia Minor area. Sardis was the capital of that area, starting all the way back in the book of Judges, all the way through um, most of the Old Testament. So it had a long history of being strong and being uh, powerful and meaningful and of being rich. Its most distinguished time was probably under a king named Croesus which is a name that maybe you have heard. There used to be a saying that went around that was as rich as Croesus. If you listen to Les Mis, there's a song in it where they want to be as rich as Croesus. There you go. There's your Broadway tidbit for the day. Um, as rich as Croesus. And he was not only a powerful monarch, but he was one of the richest men that ever lived. There were grand days, and the greatness of these glorious days were not forgotten by the people of Sardis. They were proud of their heritage. But when we get to the city of Sardis in this time period, in the biblical time period, in the first century after Christ, it possesses only a glimmer of its former greatness. The growing demands of a complex civilization had made that mountaintop fortress too small, and so the people had started to sort of um, navigate and settle on the, on the base of the mountain. And because the fortress was no longer as valuable, the capital uh, and government center of Lydia, then Asia Minor, um, ended up in Pergamum, which we've already studied. So Sardis kind of lost some of its renown. The buildings that remained were memories of the past. Wealth, was, wealth still abounded. They were still at the crossroads. But Sardis's greatest achievements were in the past. And the church in Sardis? Well, as we've seen with some other cities, the church reflected its immediate culture just a little bit too much. The greatest achievements of the church in Sardis were also in its past. Let's read it in uh, Revelation 3, 1-6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up 
and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Yet you have a, still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church at Sardis probably reflected an attitude that pervaded the whole city, and that is what became their shadow mission. Maintain reputation. Live in, maintain, worry about, focus on the reputation. Certainly Sardis as a city had this inclination, and so also did the church. But reputation is not reality. Reputation is not reality. Reputation is one thing. Reality is another thing. Now, we hope the goal in life, the goal for a church, the goal for your personal life, is that your reputation and reality align, that they're consistent. So, if as a campus we are a caring group, we hope that that reality is um, paralleled by our reputation, that we're caring and people know us as caring. We have the reputation of caring. But what happens when your reputation, what happens when your reality isn't all that great? What you end up starting to do is worry about the reputation. And you almost want the reputation to separate itself from the reality. Because you want to maintain a certain perspective, a certain view. You want to force a perspective on the world around us. We want to revert to some Disney-esque imagineering. And we end up doing reputation management. Hoping that people don't look too long or delve too deep or really stare at those third-story windows and go, they're actually really small. So there's two entities here. There's reality and there's reputation that may or may not align, but even if they are consistent, we have to remember that they're separate because they could become divergent pretty quickly. A reputation can go, can go south real quick. And so we have Sardis, who had the reputation of being alive. That was the one side of it, the reputation. They were, had a reputation of being alive. But the true picture is what Jesus looked at. So when he went and looked at Sardis, he said, you are dead. On the screen is a star. It has a name. It's named Deneb. Deneb is one of the most distant stars that you can see with the naked eye. 
It's about, I'm not quite sure about how they measure stars, this is way beyond my wheelhouse here, but um, it's about two to, uh, to 3,000 light years away from us, closer to two, they think, which is actually really close in terms of star distances. Denim came to my attention this week because of the amount of time, for the, because of the amount of time it takes light to travel from a star to the Earth. There's a delay there. So the sun's light, for instance, reaches us eight minutes after it shines. So the light comes out from the sun, and then eight minutes later you see it. You're on time delay. It's like the Olympics. You're on time delay with the sun. But when I was reading about Deneb, the article made this connection. It said that it would take 2,000 years for Deneb's light to reach the earth. Which means the light we're seeing now, the article said, was first produced from Deneb in the Roman Empire. And it struck me as interesting that the light we're seeing now from Deneb is the light that first shone when this letter was actually being written a couple thousand years ago. But I came across that in trying to get to this information that I'm about to tell you about Deneb, so that was like kind of a cool parenthesis. What I was, the reason I was researching stars was because I was trying to verify this little tidbit of something that I'd heard somewhere in my past. And that was because of this long time that it takes light to reach us, that a star can actually die, but you would not know it because the light would keep shining for years and years and years. So Deneb could already be dead. But it would take 2,000 years for us to see that the light no longer shined. A dead star that still was shining light long after its death. And I thought of that when I was thinking of this reputation of Sardis. That it is still riding this shiny reputation. And it's depending on this reputation but when Christ comes along, he says, no, the source of it has died. You may think you're bright and shiny, but you are dead. Jesus is interested, he says, in the reality of you being alive, not in the reputation of you being alive. Do you see the difference? He's going to check on the reality. He wants to know the reality. He's going to be looking into your, into your reality. So how do we know if all of this reality can be warped, if reality can be manipulated, if reality can be forced, then how would we ever know if our reputation and our reality have become conflicting? Especially if we have a good reputation. How do we know that the good reputation that we have actually reflects who we are? We can't just depend on, oh, people think well of us, so we must be good. There's got to be another way for us to analyze and critique who we really are. And I think the text offers us a couple ways to quote-unquote check our pulse. A couple ways to know if we have drifted into the shadow mission of simple re uh, reputation management. Here's the first one. Here's the first clue that you may have slipped, that we may have slipped into reputation management. And this can happen on a personal level, too. That there are no new works in our church or in our campus deserving of commendation. If you've been here for some of our other sermons, you'll notice that there's been a pattern with these churches. That Jesus has come in and he's commended the churches for something and then critiqued them for something. 
Sardis is the first church we come across that, may, that has a, a criticism without a commendation. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you're dead. There's no, you've done great with service. You've done great working against that heresy. You've prayed well. There's none of that. There are no words of commendation. Clearly, the church has had some good works in the past, because it has a good reputation. And Jesus says, I know your works, but it feels like those good works had been previous good works. At one time, they were vigorous and energetic. And one time, they were glowing with aliveness. But now, they were resting on their laurels. They were riding out the light that had shined from them years ago. But they weren't producing any new light. Jesus found no current works to be commended, and this should give us pause. Pause both as a campus and also as individuals. I don't want to suggest here, I want to make a little bit of a comment. I don't want to suggest here that Jesus has a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately disposition towards us. Because sometimes we can think, well, we just have to keep doing good things to please Jesus. I'm not trying to get us in that direction. But I am trying to say that the Bible here and throughout Scripture seems to talk about singing a new song, doing a new work. Paul talks about taking the gospel to new places. So, and we know that Jesus' language about what he does for us is wrapped up in this idea of newness. So I think it's fair to say that, this, that Christ is looking for us to be moving forward. He's looking for us to do new and creative and different things with the way that we share the gospel, with the way that we interact with our friends. New and, and, and um, moving forward uh, steps in terms of our personal growth. So I don't think we want to look at it as Christ is waiting for us to um, sort of do the exact right thing he's looking for and um, sort of have this, this secret rubric that he expects us to follow. But I think when Christ comes to see us as a church or to you as, a can- uh, as an individual, and he says, I'd like to commend you, our answer can't be, well, in the past, I've done this. I feel like Christ is going to say, well, I want, I want you to know what you're doing now. I mean, thank you for what you've done in the past, but if you've done something in the past, you really could be a dead star that's just pointing back to past light. So first, I think we as individuals and we as a campus can say, are we doing works that are worthy of commendation from Christ? That's a good way to make sure that we're still alive, that we're still vibrant, because we're doing good things in the present. Secondly, notice that in the same way that Sardis receives no commendation, The message to the church is also silent about resistance, persecution, or challenge, a theme that's been common to every other church we've looked at. There were no Nicolaitans or followers of Balaam bringing in heresy. There was no woman Jezebel, the sort of person in the church that was offering um, an alternate theology. There was no threat of compulsory Caesar worship like Pergamum. There were no trade guilds like there were in Thyatira. Except there were. All of these things would have been true in Sardis. There was absolutely emperor worship. There was absolutely guild worship. Surely there was heresy. Surely there was those who were working against right gospel theology with an alternate theology. All of that existed. 
So why were none of them troubling Sardis? Well, perhaps they had no trouble because they were an untroubling church. Perhaps they didn't stand up to the immorality that was around them. Perhaps they took no clear stand on emperor worship or guild worship. In short, perhaps their reputation of being alive was simply the culture's way of thanking them for not being a problem. What's the best way for the culture to tell us we're alive? What's the best strategy for letting our culture tell us we're alive? Do some good programs, do some good works, but don't challenge the culture, don't tell them they're wrong, don't push against them, and if possible, affirm them. I guarantee if we wanted to have an alive reputation, that's how to do it. And I feel like the church of Sardis had fallen into that. Let's just not trouble anyone, and then we'll have this great reputation. Let's not push, let's not challenge, let's not critique, let's not condemn. We'll live in our little church world and let them live in their world, and then we'll have this sort of positive vibe, this reputation of being alive. This is a great strategy if you're not concerned about the reality. Because the reality with that strategy is that your reputation can live a lot, much longer than your church will live. Reputation management is a fool's game. Reputation management is a fool's game. We must not focus on our reputation. We must focus on our character. Maintain your character and let the Lord take care of your reputation. And you can see how we can slip into maintenance of our reputation. Imagine you're at work, and quite unbeknownst to you, you discover in some way or another that people think you're mean-spirited. This is a shock to you. And so you could break into reputation management mode. You walk up to somebody and go, I've always been nice to you, haven't I? Hey, you, I've never been mean to you, have I? Can you go talk to so-and-so and find out why she thinks I'm... You see how you break into reputation management? You could spend a lot of time doing that. Or you could perhaps stop, spend some time with the Lord, and say, Lord, am I mean-spirited? Maybe there's some reality that needs some time. Because you, your reputation could change if maybe your spirit changed. Maybe they're seeing something you do not see. We can spend a lot of time on reputation management, and we can even be successful in managing that reputation. But if the reality is that you're still mean or mean-spirited, when Christ comes along, he's not going to ask your co-workers. He's going to say to you, what's your spirit? What's your spirit like? We must focus on managing our character and our, not our reputation. I'll say this briefly. We studied this at length with Pastor John in the fall, but I want to just mention it here because it's so relevant. Social media is the battleground of reputation management. Social media is reputation management. It is virtual reality 
and our culture spends thousands of hours building and managing the picture of themselves and far less time building their own selves. When we do that, we're, we're sardis. We end up with this reputation that's alive and happy. And look at that puppy picture. Look how great their vacation is. And then there's this reality that may or may not have any connection at all. Reputation management is a fool's game. And part of the reason it's a fool's game is because eventually the gig will be up, my friends. The gig will be, can I say that? The gig will be up. That's like vintage 1963, I think. The gig will be up. If you're only protecting your your reputation, eventually you'll be found out. Eventually, people will see that the star has burned out. They will eventually see who you really are. They will essentially see who we really are. So we pray for God to protect our reputation, and we work on our character. How do we do this? Well, first, according to the passage, we need to wake up. Wake up. If you read on in, in the passage we looked at, we find out that Sardis, to quote the Princess Bride, if you're a Princess Bride fan, was only mostly dead. Because there were still some, a few, that were still alive. There were a few who still walked with God. And there was, so there was still hope for Sardis. There's still hope for us. But we need to wake up. We need to wake up to reality. We need to stop writing what we've done in the past. We need to stop glorifying what we've done in the past. We need to dive into the fray of culture. We need to wake up to what's happening around us. We need to be relevant. We need to be thoughtful about how we're engaging our culture. Wake up, Jesus says. Stop being passive. Stop resting on your laurels. Stop being happy with your good reputation. It's time to be a church that is alive, he says to Sardis. It's time to be a church that, and Christians that are alive. This particular command to wake up would have been especially, I think, relevant to Sardis. In spite of its proud military reputation, there was an embarrassing legacy that Sardis also carried with it. And I think Jesus might be poking at them a little bit on this legacy trying to tell them that there's other parts of your reputation that you might not want to lean on so strongly. Way back in the Persian era, with King, with, well, he was General Cyrus at the time, uh, so this is the same Cyrus that shows up in Daniel and other parts of the Old Testament, so that Cyrus, when he was a general, uh, was advancing across uh, Lydia, uh, Asia Minor, and came upon Sardis with its towering fortress that could not be broached. And so they they began to lay siege to the fortress. And Cyrus told his generals, if any man will find a way to storm the fortress and overwhelm it, I will give him a large reward. And so this was the challenge, is we can't seem to climb up the front of the fortress. It's only got one sloping entrance from the back, which is pretty much easy pickings if we try to go that way. So who can find us a way into this place? 
In the army was a soldier named Hieroides. Hieroides was watching the fortress one day, and he noticed the Sardinian soldier on the top wall lose his helmet. Fell over the wall, plink, 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 down the side of the fortress. And then Hieroides watched as that soldier slipped off the wall, made his way in a, down a secret path of the battlement, got his helmet, walked back up this path, and entered right back into the fortress. Hieroides memorized the path. And that night, him and a band of soldiers made their way up that exact path, found the entrance to the fortress, unguarded, and took the city while it slept. This was part of Sardis's reputation, too. So I think it struck them, maybe in a meaningful way, when Jesus says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come upon you like a thief in the night, and you won't know when. There was a story that Sardis would have remembered when they heard that. That word, wake up, can be translated, be watchful. We need to be watchful of who we really are. Be awake to the truth and work on the truth of who we are. Secondly, we need to follow through. Notice that Jesus says to Sardis, your works are incomplete. They're unfulfilled. They're unfinished. You had a good start back then, but you really haven't closed the deal. You've sort of let yourselves go. And I see this, you can see how this happens, because you can build up a reputation pretty quick. And you can say, well, we've got the reputation, do we really have to keep doing this? Because doing it's actually hard. And so, I think we see Jesus encouraging his believers to keep moving forward, to keep continuing on with what we do with our lives and with our character. It's always kind of dangerous while on earth to spiritually say that you've arrived. I'd avoid that if I were you. To say, I think I've, I think I've achieved all there is to achieve with humility. I think I've nailed it. That's probably not the best way to approach life. I think we can be encouraged by this passage, but also by the words of Apostle Paul. Remember he says, um, he talks about finishing the race. He talks about attaining the prize. Keep on, keep on, keep on. Finally, the people at Sardis are told to remember what they have received and what they have heard. And this would be the gospel. The gospel must always be the guiding light in helping us to understand reality. And I mean the gospel not in sort of the narrow, there is the narrow gospel of Jesus the Savior, um, he died on the cross for you. There's that narrow gospel, but there's the larger gospel of restoration, of reconciliation, the larger gospel of kindness, of justice, of humility. There's a larger gospel, and those are the criteria by which we say, are we alive? Are we vibrant? The gospel informs us. The gospel is the truth, and it informs us of the truth. It offers us the accurate light 
for determining reality. The passage ends like this, and so will we. As I mentioned earlier, there are still a few in Sardis who are holding true. There are still a few that have lived holy lives without compromise. But I want you to notice the language. It says, you have a few names in Sardis. Names. A name is not a reputation. A name is who you are. It's more so in their time than ours. But a name is who you are. So-and-so, son of so-and-so, that is your identity. It's almost like Jesus is saying, there's some real people still in Sardis. There's some real Christians. There's some real followers. There's some real names in Sardis. And he, he plays on this language. See it? There's real names who have not become unholy. And therefore, I will not blot out the name from the book of life. And when I stand before my Father, I will confess his name. It's lost a little bit in our translation, but the first line, you have the reputation of being alive but are dead, that word reputation is actually the word name. Same exact words we see here three times. You have the name of being alive, but you're dead. It's almost as if the passage is saying that us as individuals and us as a community, you, have the, you want to have a name that is real, a name that is true, a name that is accurate to the gospel because it's the name that gets written in the book of life. It's your name that's commended before the Father. And we want our name to be real. We want our name to reflect the reality of who our character actually is. And so we pursue building our character so that when Christ comes, it's our name that he writes in the book of life. Amen? Let's pray together and we'll have some more time of worship. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter to the, to the church of Sardis. And Lord, we know that there are times where we overly worry about our reputation, either as a community or as individuals. And I pray in those times in particular that you would remind us of the gospel truth, that you would remind us to wake up and to look at who we really are, and that we would not play the fool's game of reputation management, but rather we would focus on maintaining, managing, and building our true name and our true character. So that in our past, in our present, and in our future, our works may honor you. So that when you come, you will commend us. And you will write our names in the book of life. That is our hope. That is our desire. And we praise you, Lord, for making that way possible for us by the shedding of your blood. You are our Savior. You are our Lord. And it's in your name we pray.